Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Giovanni Vigna, the founder, co-founder and CTO of LastLine.com. We're going to be talking about uh, computer security, malware, etc. Giovanni, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Doing good. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. And it sounds like it's a beautiful day where you are. You said you're in Santa Barbara. So, uh, yeah, so, so far, so good. So, uh, if you would, um, by way of an intro, what is it that LastLine does and Specifically, you at the company. What do you do? So, uh, Laughline is a company that produces uh, sort of anti-malware technology and products. Uh, our main goal is to protect enterprise networks against breaches. So, sophisticated malware getting in, infecting machines, spreading uh, inside uh, an organization. And my role is uh, the CTO. So, in a way, um, I sort of am responsible for the technology and for making sure that we continue to innovate in a, in an environment where the threat itself changes continuously. Well, here's a real basic question. So do you deal with viruses? Do you deal with Trojan horses and phishing and spearing? And is malware like an umbrella term for all that stuff? Or is malware a subset of potential computer problems? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, so we, we deal a lot with um, sort of artifacts, and I'm using this generic term artifacts because people think about malware like executable, like in the olden time, but actually malware comes now as PDFs, as Word documents in attachment to mail. In general, is any code that tries to enter a target network and take control of a host and then spread out. This is um, the the type of attack that we detect and and prevent. Other attacks, for example, social engineering attacks, uh, phishing, are not what we focus on. Um, we focus on very sophisticated, evasive uh, artifacts that try to penetrate your network. Okay, all right. So any attack on a network, it, you know, malware is just a term for <clears throat> for the multi-pronged attack, social engineering, you know, Trojan horses, viruses, all that kind of stuff. That's right, right? Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, so what are the, I, I mean, from what I've heard and what I've read, thousands, tens of thousands of viruses, new ones are created every day. I mean, it seems like such a, an amazing, it almost seems like viruses in real life. I mean, what do you see? What are some of the stats? Like how many viruses or malware softwares are out there and how many are being created and how crazy is this problem? So, yeah, that, that's a very good question. The problem is pretty crazy. Uh, sometimes is misrepresented. Sometimes it's not as crazy as um, some people would like to represent because they want to create this sense of, you know, impending doom. It's very serious because, um, of course, it, it, you have to understand that we are in an arms race. So every time the security community comes up with an effective uh, solution to detect and block this this malware, 
some our authors, you know, go immediately at work to find a way to bypass it. So it, it, it's always a cops and robber situation. And right. because of sort of the traditional antivirus that use signature to identify uh, malicious code, the the bad guys never send fundamentally the same file to you twice. So what they do, they take a, a basic program that, for example, it's a Trojan horse, what we call a rat, so the remote access tool, um, and every time they send it to a victim, they repackage it in a way that makes it look different on the outside, but internally is always the same. So if you look only at the outside on what we call static analysis, means you don't execute the, the, the sample, you can't really tell what's inside. So the only way that you have to find out what the hell is going on in this particular sample is to open it up, let it execute, and observe what it does. How do you do that? Do you have computers that are in, um, like, an in- intranet that are blocked from the outside world, that, uh, like a lab, you know, like a biohazard lab? That's a substantial part of our business is exactly this, what we call uh, execution in a sandbox. So we take documents, we take websites, we take executable, and we ran them or open them in an environment that looks absolutely normal, but is actually instrumented so that we can collect all the behavior that these programs or web pages or documents carry out. And then we make a call. We say, hey, this PDF document is absolutely normal and benign. Or we can say, hey, this PDF document is trying to change you know, your uh, settings so you do not update your antivirus anymore. That sounds not very nice. And therefore, we know oh. that that is actually something bad. That's really cool. Do you, you guys have to wear special suits in your lab to uh, work with the computers? Uh, in, in metaphorically, yes. <laughs> no, no, metaphorically, <laughs> yes. For example, an interesting thing in this community, you never exchange samples uh, that are not zip and encrypted. And the standard is to zip this so put them in an archive and put a password. And the password is almost always infected so that you really have to, you know, go there, unzip, and put in a password because you are actually exchanging with your colleagues pretty toxic material. And so you don't want that by mistake. Somebody double clicks on a PDF or a Word document and suddenly they get infected themselves. Really? That's crazy. Huh. Yeah. It is. It is like real life. That's weird. How do you get your... um your malicious stuff, like where do you go looking for it? Do you look for it out in the environment or are you tasked by um, specific companies where they send you the, you know, the, the virus trapped in a, you know, encrypted compressed file or how do you get them? So most of, most of the stuff that we get is because our customers um, have installed our solution and we're in the cloud for at least half of our customers. And so we sit on their networks, we observe their traffic. And when we see somebody download something, we take a copy of it and we send it to our cloud for analysis. So what we see, and we see hundreds of thousands of these objects every day, and, uh, every time we saw one of these, we observe at an event in the real world. The other thing that we do is we proactively crawl the internet, pretending to be an extremely vulnerable user and sort of like going in all sorts of places uh, in a smart way, uh, saying, hey, please infect me, you know, 
I am a poor guy that doesn't have, you know, any security <laughs> on my system. And so we play the sacrificial lamb so that we can always get the latest, greatest attacks against, you know, users. That's crazy. It sounds really cool what you guys do. It's amazing. So your application um, sits on a company's servers and it monitors all the traffic and it takes each PDF or email and all that stuff and it sandboxes it and sends it off to you guys for analysis or analyzes it against the cloud. Um, that is correct. Then, I mean, we can... Yeah. Sorry. So what, Go ahead. So what happens then? Let's say there's something malicious. What do you guys do? do you, well, oh, here's a question. Do yeah. you intercept the email or the attachment or the file before the user opens it or downloads it and analyze it, or do you do it after? It seems like you'd have to do it before so as not to infect them. Yeah, so it, that depends on um, the particular setup. For example, with emails, it's very easy to say, hey, I'm going to delay your email because I want to analyze the attachments, and so I won't deliver the email until I'm sure that it won't harm you. Um, with downloads, it's a little bit uh, different. In certain situations, you can actually block the download. For example, we actually generate our own, um, what we call uh, a representation of the milescape. The milescape is for us the malware landscape. So we know at each point in time, and we update this by the minute, we know in the internet where are the places that are used, and places means host. What are the IP addresses and domain names that are serving malware at this point in time? So when we see you trying oh. to download something from something awful that you know we know is being used this you know this next twenty minutes to uh, to distribute malware, we can block that, and therefore you don't get infected. Of course, this is not something that can be done for every download. Sometimes you know download happen in different ways, in ways that we cannot block, for example, because they use, you know, shared infrastructure on, you know, some cloud that is mostly benign. And at that point, we can observe the download. We can alert the system administrator, hey, that machine is likely infected because downloaded something nasty, but we cannot block. But we can give the early warning that allows the system administrator to take care of that machine before start spreading out collecting data, and exfiltrating sensitive information. So what, uh, how do you express the success of your service? Is it like a percentage, you know, you can stop 99% of attacks, or how do you express the power of your service or the usefulness? I, I would say that the usefulness of our service is the ability to uh, at least detect the attacks with a very uh, minimal number of false positives. Because... You know, it, 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 this is a problem that people don't realize as much until they use one of these tools. You have to be incredibly precise. We put an enormous amount of effort in not making mistakes. So, because if I give you a solution that, you know, eight times a day, eight times a day, uh, creates a false alarm, you will stop using mm. it because you don't have the time to, you know, go out and put out fires that do not exist. Um, so I, our I think that's would, called uh, I think that's called Norton antivirus. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, I, I call it you know uh, false positive exhaustion. You know, at a certain point, you say no, I I can't do this. You know, you, you can right. say that uh, you know more um, flamboyant way, but fundamentally, you say, hey, this is this is useless. I I don't want to be 
waking up in the middle of the night, taking care of stuff that is not a problem. Right. Um, interesting. So are you able to give an idea of how effective your system is? Do you have, uh, you know, any case studies we can talk about on, uh, yeah, tax you prevented? Well, I mean, I, um, I am a scientist. So uh, one thing that I haven't said, I'm also a professor of computer science at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Um, and I've done a lot of research in, in malware analysis and network security. Um, so uh, my background is fundamentally science. So um, I uh, I don't like to you know brag with uh, unfounded um, data. Uh, what, what I can say is that we have a uh, sort of a reputable third-party um, analysis lab called the NSS Labs that evaluated us a number of years, and last year, it was 2016, they uh, put us at the very top, saying the last line detect 100% of the attacks that they threw at us with 0% of false positives. Is this always no. the case? Absolutely not. We never, I, I would never, as a scientist, I cannot say that in every case, we detect everything without mistakes. In this particular test, we did extremely well, and I'm really pleased with it, um, and I think that uh, our technologies, our technology in terms of analysis is, you know, uh, in the best in the market. Um, however, it's very difficult to provide um, sort of a, a, a real, um, a real way to evaluate these kind of technologies unless you put them in your network side by side, looking at the traffic. When people say, "Hey, how do you compare to this competitor or this competitor?" I say, "You know, right. I cannot really tell you." Because every network is different, the combination of traffic, the throughput, and everything else. Only way you have to evaluate this is put them side by side on the same traffic on your network, and then make a decision. Because everything else will be polluted by marketing, even you know, even and 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 all, either by marketing or, as in my case, by the fact that you're asking me if my kid is the smarter in the class, and of course the answer is yes. Gotcha. How do you start working with a company or a network? You know, like the reason why I ask is, what if the network is infected to begin with, and you go in there and you get affected by it? How do you start and make sure a network is clean or a computer system is clean, and then search for new threats? Uh, well, we, we we don't start from that assumption. We actually, most of the time, uh, enter networks that are already infected, and and this is because. We do not look only to these artifacts that people download to their machines, but we look to a num to uh, we look at a number of things. For example, we look for command and control connections. So when these computers get infected, they call home somewhere where you know the bot master has set up uh, a control network, and they say, "Hey, I'm infected. I'm available. What should I do? Do you want me to you know steal some credit cards? Do you want me to?" Uh, mine bitcoins, just let me know. So we are able to detect these deep command and control connections and uh, we can tell you that the machine is infected even though we never saw the actual attack because we were, we were not there yet. Uh, and that's one aspect of it. Another thing that we do uh, is we sit on a network and we build statistical models that are associated with the normal usage of the network. And in this way, we can detect anomalies that are obviously uh, things that should be 
associated with malicious activity, and we flag them to the system administrator. And so those anomalies are not very subtle anomalies. And so even though the, the, the network is already infected, it doesn't affect our machine learning. So how come there's all these data breaches the past few years? Are these companies not just not using companies like you, or is the problem so difficult that breaches are going to happen? Or you know, what's, you know that's, better that's, than me. What's the real? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great question, and I think it's a composition of things. First of all, and the fact that uh, companies recognize this as a real problem is recent. If you go back just you know five, six years ago. You know, people are like, malware? I don't have a malware problem. Nowadays, if a company would say that, you know, the, the chief security officer would be kicked out of the door like two minutes later. But six sure. years ago, people were actually stating that that was not a problem. And and so there was a little bit of education. Um, and then people finally got breached. And then the worst possible form of education getting breached. But um, now there is the, you know, when people got breached, everybody, went to this, you know, breach detection system like ours, and they say, hey, we want to install it. But there are many breach detection systems, and they're not all the same. And so some of them um, produce detections, but they're not put in the right context, and so they're often ignored. So, for example, just to give you an, an idea, um, you remember the, the retail target got a huge breach, and yep. they had a breach detection system, and that system actually produced an alert for the particular attack that was, you know, initiated. But the alert was so generic, and there were so many alerts, it got sort of lost in the sea of the puzzle pieces that were thrown in the face of the system administrator. So detection uh, oh, is like a boy that cried wolf type of thing. Not not only it, it, suppose that you have a hundred thousand boys. They cry the wolf, and they're all right. But the wolves are all of different oh. size and shape. So huh. you want to tell, hey, can you tell me the really bad wolves first? Because, yes, of course I'm always under attack. I have a huge network. But if I get spyware that would put ads on my desktop, that's one thing. If I get a, you know, a major breach that will completely uh, you know, disrupt my network, that's a different problem. So. Detection is wow. just one part of, of the puzzle. You also have to be able to put the pieces together and present to the system administrator something that is semantically meaningful to be able to have a reaction that is commensurate to the threat. This is really complicated. I don't know how you guys do all you do. It's amazing. Ah, it's I science. Didn't all this <laughs> it's science. That's why we march for it. Wow. Um, how, what size companies can afford your solutions. I mean, how affordable so, is this? And is it how should it be used by everybody? Or you know, what I, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I don't think I don't think that Lastline per se is something that um, would be useful for the the consumer uh, market. Mostly because um, even though we are very good at putting together this information and presenting present the information in a way that makes sense, um, there's always the, the problem that it has to be interpreted in the context of a network. So the, the companies that would mostly benefit from our solutions are companies that have, for example, a dedicated security person. And if, if a company has a person whose goal is to handle the security of a company, that's probably 
the right size. But I would say, you know, 1,000 employees and up is uh, the most common case for our customers. Okay. All right, makes sense. Um, I read a book about the Stuxnet virus, that it was so complicated, and this is the one, I guess, that infected Iranian centrifuges of a particular model and caused them to, you know. Have you ever seen a virus that scared you, that amazed you, that you couldn't handle? Uh, Well, I know, funny enough, first of all, yes, Stuxnet, I would say, is the virus that amazed me and makes me think, okay, these guys totally know what they're doing. Because the, 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 the amount of stealth that they had, the amount of targeting, the amount of zero-day attacks that we're leveraging in order to be able to both attack and stay put and under the radar when necessary, it was, it was just good stuff. I mean, you, you have to respect you know the art and craft of these amazing hackers. Um, uh, but, and I've, I've seen you know uh, malware that is very sophisticated, um, especially you know we we focus on invasive malware. You have to understand um, that because of the arms race especially for us, where we create these sort of synthetic worlds when we execute malware to try to elicit malicious behavior, there is always right. this, what we call a reverse Turing test. So the, the Turing test is when you put in front of a machine and you have to figure out if the machine is answering to you with artificial intelligence or there is another human being answering your question on the other side. That's the Turing mm-hmm. test. This malware does the reverse Turing test they're sort of like in this environment and they have to figure out, hey, am I, I, I want to find out if I am on the real computer of a real person or I am an assimilated computer. And so they start looking, for example, the malware looks at really? the movement of the mouse. Does they click too fast? Is the mouse moving too fast? Do they have... No, wait, oh, absolutely. wait a minute. You're saying the malware is that sophisticated that it's testing you to see yes. if you're trying to dupe it? Yeah, absolutely. That's called evasive wow. malware. There are so many techniques, and that's that's huge, and that's a great differentiator in technology. Being able to resist these attempts at evasion, they look at stuff. You know, you you will they, they look, for example, are your you know the, the driver of your hard drive, and you say, oh, your hard drive driver is X Y Z. I know that this particular security vendor uses the driver, so I'm just gonna terminate here and not showing anything of the bad stuff that I do. And so the machine says, oh, the mach- this program is good. Didn't do anything bad. So you need really to be able to capture these attempts to fingerprint the system or fingerprint the user and use that as a signal to say, this program is bad. And that's one of the major challenges challenges in malware analysis. That's crazy. It really is an arms race. That's, that's like, this is getting to like a crazy level. I was going to ask you, the next question, are you, do you know of any artificially intelligent systems that either create malware or defend against it? Has it gotten to that point yet? Well, you know, um, I, I would say not an artificial intelligence system that produces malware, but as the computer security community increasingly uses machine learning and artificial intelligence in order to generate models to detect malware, the malware writers are starting to try to understand which models are used, and they morph their samples, their programs, in order to sort of to conform to 
what is normal according to those models. It's called adversarial machine learning. So when some, when you learn something and somebody is trying <laughs> fundamentally to screw with you. This is, you must love your job. This is crazy. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. I do love my job. <laughs> you, you, you never, you never, you never out of your job first. And also you, oh, yeah. you're in competition oh, yeah. with incredibly creative minds. I mean, the, the yeah. stuff that we see sometimes we're like, whoa, okay, that was interesting. And you never yeah, stop give, learning. Yeah, give me, um, give me a few examples of the really crazy, uh, creative, innovative, or uh, destructive stuff you've seen. Give me a few examples that really stick out to you. It's like, wow, this is a big problem. Uh, I, I'll give you an example. So um, we were analyzing, uh, and this was actually already a few years ago. That tells you how sophisticated this stuff is. So we were analyzing some malicious JavaScript. So this is JavaScript that comes to your browser and uses vulnerabilities in order to take control of your browser and eventually your whole system. And so, you know, we wanted really this, this JavaScript to again, perform all their bad stuff. So whenever we they would ask something like, do you have this particular component in your browser? We would say, yes, of course we do. And we will, you know, in order to get them to continue executing. And at a certain point, they we started to not see that type of behavior anymore. And we were wondering, what, what happened there? And so we noticed that actually they were putting their... Um, their code in the exception. So they would say, do you have this particular component? And the name of the component was a random string. So they were sure that the component did not exist. So okay. we would say yes. And so they wouldn't do anything in that case. But a real system will throw an exception. So they would say, oh, you don't have it? Okay, then I'm going to attack you. So by looking at, at this particular... So they were, they were already figured out that there was a com- particular company that was looking at this particular type of JavaScript and was providing everything that the JavaScript was asking. And so they would say, okay, I'm going to ask him something that nobody else has. If you say that you have it, I'm not going to do anything bad. But I'm going to fail on everybody else, and then I'm going to do something nasty. So, okay, what's the goal of, and what, you know, I, I'm sure there's several goals. One is just mischief. Profit is a huge one. You know, what are the goals of all this malware and viruses and all that? Like, what, what are these uh, people trying to do? Steal information? Steal money? I, I think that uh, there, there, there are probably three main uh, reasons for this. One is money. And, you know, attacks that focus on money are usually very opportunistic, meaning that they put on large infrastructure, they try to attract as many victims as possible, and if they have, you know, a million hits, but they can just, you know, get, you know, 10% of those. They're already 100,000 victims. If they can steal, you know, $2 from each of them, they're already making $200,000. So it, 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 it's pretty good, okay? The other okay. thing, the second thing is to steal information to be reused in attacks or to be sold in their underground economy. So I steal your credit card and I can buy stuff on Amazon and send it to a shipping mule so I can resend it to Russia and sell it to the black market on the black market or I can just take your social security number and and your you know complete information and go on the dark net and say hey for you know two dollars I'll give you all the information about this person you can clone their identity and create a credit card and do you know whatever you want the third thing is nation states 
So nation states are uh, a lot less uh, sort of, they don't cast as usually a wide net where they try to get everybody because they want to stay as much as possible under the radar. So they do very targeted attacks. For example, we see NGOs, they do some sort of, you know, and humanitarian activity, getting these very targeted emails with attachments that are malicious. And these, you know, the attachments, the, the emails talk about a meeting between two people that is, you know, and you receive this email and say, oh, yeah, I know what that means. And you immediately click the attachment because it sounds familiar. Oh, so they right. do a lot of research in order to trigger that event that will eventually lead to an infection. Now, the interesting thing that came out with this whole Russian hacking stuff is that, for example, in the Russian case, the FBI found out that now the uh, Russian intelligence was going to the cyber crooks, the guy that set up the botnet on large scale, and they were going to them and say, hey, you know, can we ride your bike for a little bit? We were like, since you have the fillers on 180,000 computers, can you please search for this particular you know, string. And so mm. suddenly the, the two worlds, the worlds of nation state attacks and the cyber crooks are starting to merge because effectively, effectively, <laughs> the are, some people you know, would say they are merged, but yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah it, it, well, you know, you, you made a force a bun at this point, but um, right, right. That's, well, that, that's, that's the basic idea. That's crazy. Huh. Um, I, I have a question. It, this is just something I thought of. I would guess that, for instance, in the, in the United States, 90% of people's information has been already stolen at some point. You know, social security numbers, birth dates, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I, God forbid, I hope not, but I would think, why wouldn't all that information be gathered and sat on? You know, a person's social is not going to change. A person's birthday is not going to change. Why isn't there someone out there gathering and, you know, having information on, like, literally everyone in the United States, all the birthdays, all the socials and all that, and then using it years later for an attack or a year later or selectively mining that data for for various financial attacks. Like, why hasn't that happened? It seems like, again, with the yeah. amount of breaches that everyone's data has been compromised, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem is, like, what? Uh, first of all, there is nothing that can, you know, corroborate or discredit what you just said. I mean, maybe there is somebody who's building this, you know, super database of all the information. The problem is like, what attack can you really carry out with that? Okay, you can suddenly clone a lot of people identities. Yeah, okay, that would be probably a nuisance, but after a while it would create patterns and people, you know, will just stop using social security numbers as a security feature, which I think is something that the people should ask for because it's ridiculous that something that is so common uh, is, you know, used as a secret. For example, I, I'm Italian right. and the Italian social security number can be determined by your name and date of birth. So it's not a secret. You know, everybody right. knows my social security number and it's simply never used for anything sensitive because it's like, yeah, we know your social security number is the, you know, letters in your name and a few other, you know, things that you can derive from your from your birthplace uh, or birthday. So uh, that 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 would change a lot. Other things that can change a lot is like if everybody start using two factor authentication. I mean, this is something that still baffles me. And you know, 
I wouldn't say irritates me, but I like we have at the tip of our hand for free a technology that when used in Gmail, Facebook, Bank, would cut down the incident of stolen identity, stolen email addresses, email accounts, and compromised identity by 99%. But people wow. always have this idea that security is a pain in, in the neck, and, and the, it is a pain in the neck. There is always a trade-off between usability and security. But two-factor authentication is one thing that the consumers can use to protect themselves uh, in a very effective way. Hmm. Okay. Well, I have I have tons more questions, but I know that you know if you, I can't have you here all day. But just maybe a, a couple more, and we'll wrap up. This has yeah. been a fascinating conversation. I think it's really great. Um, uh, you know, we, we didn't finish, but um, any attacks out there right now, or ones that uh, appear to be forming, that really companies should pay attention to, you know, what are the latest vectors and biggest security holes that, that companies that could use your service have that they yeah. need to be made aware of? Well, uh, there, there are two uh, two things that I think is they're very interesting. One is um, uh, the shift that we observed from downloading executables and using attacks with executables to using documents. Uh, most of the attacks are through documents, and so having a good document analysis system is fundamental to protect uh, large corporations. Um, another uh, trend that we see actively is this fileless um, sort of like attacks, where you see JavaScript flying on the wire and compromising the browser, and not really, you know, having particularly. Um, detectable activity at the host level. So you really need to be able to extract JavaScript from the wire, analyze it in a sandbox, and being able to provide intel on the fact that this JavaScript is malicious or not. And there are very, very few technologies that are able to do that because there are so many uh, challenges in doing that, you know, sniffing from the wire, uh, giving context to this JavaScript, making sure that it executes. And so this is something that you know, I am, you know, very uh, proud that we're able to do, uh, and, and there are not very many techs that can do it effectively. And then, uh, yeah, last couple of questions. Again, what about Internet of Things attacks? You know, now that um, people are gearing up and having, or companies, you know, they may have Nest or, you know, climate control. I've heard attacks are coming in from there. You know, what about these IoT devices? Um, are they a new vector for, at, for attacks on networks? Yeah, absolutely, they are. And, and, you know, in fact, one of the most, you know, recent devastating botnets, uh, like the Mirai botnet, has been built on these, you know, IoT cameras that have poor authentication. Um, a little bit of this is uh, old wine in new bottles, meaning that, you know, we, we had uh, crappy security for desktops, and then a lot of desktops got compromised, so now we have much better security for desktop. So we're starting the wave again. We're gonna because of market pressure, you know, Silicon Valley pushes out this insecure code and then a bunch of hackers, including us, you know, us meaning the researchers and security, uh, uh, look at vulnerabilities and say, Hey guys, this is crazy. I mean, a default password, you know, service service, so you can get into anything from anywhere. That's that's right. just it's not just a, a, a mistake. This is negligence. 
And and so uh, after a little bit, I'm sure we're going to have a little more of IoT um, uh, burn. But after a while, I think we will realize that these devices are computers like any other, and therefore they need the same level of attention that we give to desktop and laptops. And we have the tools to do this. We have the tools to create secure stacks and protect against unauthorized access. It's just that the market pressures right now is enormous to flood the market as soon as possible with as many devices as possible so that the standards are set by the winners. Okay, great. Um, last question. I know it's not your customer. I know your customers are bigger businesses, et cetera, but just for, you know, for listeners that, you know, everyone's an individual, even if you work for a company. Yeah. What can, uh, what are a few tips that, you know, the regular Joe can do to keep, you know, his phone secure, his laptop secure, that kind of stuff. Any recommendations? Yeah. Well, you know, I already uh, used my uh, recommendation for two-factor authentication. That would be my, my first thing. Absolutely set two-factor authentication on Gmail, Facebook, any banking, Twitter, anything. It just means that, you know, if you try to log in from an IP that has never been observed before or a browser that you never used before, you need to have also a text message on your phone and the number that it contains in order to log in. That means if somebody wants to steal your email address, your email account, they have to steal your password, which probably is not very hard, but also they have to have access to your phone, which is much harder. It's not difficult to infect your phone, but to infect both your phone and your laptop or desktop is um, a lot more difficult. Not impossible, but a lot more difficult. Second thing, use a password manager. There are many there. I'm not going to single out anyone. But use a password manager with two-factor authentication. Otherwise, you're back to square one. You're giving out all your passwords to whoever steals your master password. But if you have two-factor authentication on your password manager, then you're way more secure. And third, use use uh, use a phone that is uh, safe and only install applications from reputable market. If somebody tells you, hey, go to this, you know, uh, super secret market for Android apps and you can get this new <laughs> game for free, I mean, we, we know this, you know. It, it, it's like the Nigerian prince that is sending you the $50 million. It's not going right. to happen. It's just going to install malware on your phone, which is mostly what happens with malware infection. <laughs> Okay, well, very good. This, this has been an awesome conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. I really enjoyed how it. Can, yeah, how, how can listeners um, start interacting with your company, find out about its products, and um, you know, look at your enterprise solutions if they need it? Yeah, absolutely. They can you know, send an email at info at lastline.com uh, or go to our website and you know, request a demo or things like that, and they will be contacted by our salespeople. Okay. Well, yeah, Giovanni, thanks so much for your time. Like I said, it's been a great conversation. Uh, scary, I had a great funny, time. and amazing one. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.